Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton, Vice President of the club and founder of Climate One, a club initiative that convenes leaders from business, government, and civil society to discuss solutions to global warming. Our distinguished guest today is John Hoffmeister, former CEO of Shell Oil USA and founder of Citizens for Affordable Energy. In March 2005, Mr. Hoffmeister was named president of Houston-based Shell Oil Company, the American arm of Royal Dutch Shell. His previous position was Group Human Resources Director of the Shell Group, based in The Hague, the Netherlands. As Shell president, Mr. Hoffmeister launched an extensive outreach program to discuss critical global energy challenges. The program included an 18-month, 50-city tour across the country, during which he and other Shell leaders met with more than 15,000 community and civic leaders, policymakers, academics, and others to discuss energy supplies and policies. Mr. Hoffmeister was also held key positions in General Electric, Nortel, and Allied Signal. Upon retirement from Shell Oil a few months ago, he founded and leads a national membership organization, not-for-profit, Citizens for Affordable Energy. This group will promote views on U.S. energy security, infrastructure, and environmental policy. Mr. Hoffmeister serves as chairman of the National Urban League and is a member of the U.S. Department of Energy's Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Technical Advisory Committee. He earned bachelor's and master's degrees in political science from Kansas State University. Please welcome me in joining John Hoffmeister to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, Greg, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I want to thank the Commonwealth Club for their hospitality, for inviting me to come here and address you tonight to talk about what I believe is an issue in America that rises to the level of the civil rights issues we faced in the past, of the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, in which the citizens of this country, coming together in a free democracy, can and must play a role in what we do going forward. But to get started, let's ground this in a little current day reality. You all know the topic of the speech. But let me suggest for a moment that we ground our thinking in using the style or the technique of a famous late-night talk show host. And let's talk about the ten, top ten reasons why we hate the oil companies. <laughs> let's start with reason number one, or number ten. Why would you sell a product that no one wants to see, touch, taste, or smell? Reason number nine why we hate the oil companies. Why can't you understand? When crude prices go up, so do retail prices. But not also understand, when crude prices come down, retail prices stay up. Are you stupid? Reason number eight, with all their money, why can't they put toilet paper in the restrooms? 
Reason number seven, have you tried to put air in your tires recently? What happens to all those quarters? Reason number six, where do they buy their coffee? Is it yesterday's leftover Starbucks? Reason number five, have you been lost lately and asked for directions from the local gas station clerk? You might as well ask a New York taxi driver. Reason number four, when Click and Clack, the Tappet Brothers, declare on national radio that all gas is the same, why do branded majors get five cents more a gallon? Reason number three, with American obesity being the problem it is, why don't we have lunch at your local neighborhood gas station convenience store? Reason number two, are you having trouble making ends meet? Well, if you are, why don't you call your gas company's credit card provider and ask them to cut you a break? And finally, reason number one, why we hate the oil companies. Tune in to the latest congressional hearings featuring the oil company executives taking the oath, professing their excuses, and explaining their pay packages. So, top ten reasons, ladies and gentlemen, just to ground us. But let me get more serious. There is a serious and long-standing disconnect between the companies that bring us our day-to-day oil and gas supply and the American consumer and the elected official on behalf of the American consumer. And there is a sport of vilifying the evil side that people see or the misunderstood side that people see And guess what happens as a consequence of the vilification and the devilization of the energy companies? Instead of being the friends who bring us our necessary products, it becomes the company we love to hate. And the consequence of that is bad public policy. And what happens from that bad public policy? We all pay more. But there are three fundamental issues that separate energy companies from the consumers and their elected officials, which I'd like to touch on. And they're all real. The first is distance. The distance from the typical oil company to the retail consumer is enormous. Why is this? Back in the days when we used to get free steak knives, free glasses, free kitchen towels, some of you recall from your local oil company, the oil companies owned the gas stations. But because of the vertical integration from the well to the wheel, many people took issue with that vertical integration from an antitrust or an anti-competition standpoint, and the oil companies, rather than fight it, gave up and said, okay, we will sell off our downstream infrastructure, namely our gas stations. They can carry our brand, but we won't own the property, we won't own the pumps, we won't own the stores, All we will own is the franchise right to sell our gasoline to that gas station. And from that point on, from a legal and every other standpoint, the oil companies seriously disconnected themselves from the end consumer. And while I don't necessarily agree with all of that, it has unfortunately also resulted in the oil companies not taking responsibility for the price at the pump because that is not viewed as their responsibility. So distance. Secondly, when you're in the oil business, and I can speak personally, there is this sense 
There is this urgency. There is this need for constancy. Constancy means once you've started supplying, you must keep supplying. Companies work near miracles to keep supplying because running out is not an option. It is the worst of all circumstances if you have a gas station without product. And so in the mindset of running such a company, this sense of constancy and the ability to rise above nature, the ability to deal with geopolitics, the ability to deal with local, state, or federal government, the ability to deal with lawsuits from plaintiff's attorneys or whatever it may be, you still have no choice but to supply. It creates a sense of empowerment, a sense of power, a sense of pride, that that constancy be permanent, that, that it be, be continuous. And that creates a mindset, an attitude, that we're right. We are right to do what we need to do because we need the constancy of supply. Over time, that has an impact in the way in which companies operate. And thirdly, there is this notion of time difference. Energy time is defined in decades. Short term in the energy industry, ladies and gentlemen, is a decade. To the average citizen, short term is, what am I going to do tomorrow? To an elected official, short term is, what do I have to do to get reelected in the next election cycle? So when an energy company is looking at major projects that might take a decade or two to actually make happen and then deliver product for the next 10, 20, 30 years, you're now into a 30 to 50-year time dimension. That time dimension affects how people think, how they behave. And so nothing is in that respect urgent. Today's prices may be up, but tomorrow they may be down. In the course of 10 years, they may even out. So you have this time dimension affecting the thinking, and you have this real-world sense of panic as the price goes up. Or you have this issue called political time. Political time is two years, four years, or six years because that's the interval between the time in which an official is first elected and has to get reelected. And they tend to think of what have I delivered or what will I deliver to my constituents in that two-year, four-year, or six-year cycle to deserve and earn their vote. And so this incompatibility is set up between those who operate in energy time those who operate in day-to-day -day time and those who operate in political time, that once again separates companies from the consumers and the elected officials. So distance, constancy, and time are three elements. But that's not really what I'm here to talk about in full. I wanted to get that out there because these are real issues that have created an unsustainable, unsustainably hostile relationship which is one reason when I had the opportunity at Shell to say, what can we do about this? I said, let's get out where the people live. Let's go to San Francisco. Let's go to Boston. Let's go to Omaha. Let's go to uh, Orlando and, and, and New Orleans and wherever else we need to go so we can talk to the people where they live about what issues are that we face. And I'd like to turn now to some of those issues. We have serious incompatibilities that have led to either the lack of or the creation of poor public policy. Despite that, 
Think about what does happen every day. Every day in this country, Americans consume 10,000 gallons of oil a second. A second. That's a backyard swimming pool of oil every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, month, year. In addition, we use a train carload of coal every three seconds. That's 20 carloads of coal every minute, which is 1,200 an hour. We use 60 billion cubic feet of natural gas. If we stack those cubic feet on top of each other, we would go to the moon and back 25 times every day. So the industry, for all of the hostile feelings we may have, is actually producing an extraordinary amount of energy which we rely on for our economic well-being and our lifestyle choices. But that still is not good enough because I still want to get to the meat of the issue. And this is it. This nation is in peril for the lack of a coherent comprehensive, short, medium, and long-term energy strategy. What we have experienced in the last four years, ladies and gentlemen, which is this incessantly creeping price erosion of disposable income, is just a taste of more to come. We have failed over the last decades to come to grips as a nation, as a political entity, as a society with what it takes to supply our energy, to manage our demand for energy, to deal with environmental issues associated with energy, to deal with the necessary infrastructure to support energy moving from where it's produced to where it's used, and failed to deal with the technological opportunities that are out there for energy of the future in a way that all makes sense. When we put the U.S. moratoria in place on outer continental shelf drilling, it seemed like a good idea. We can import oil less expensively than we can produce it. At the time, oil was $5 a barrel. For the last 30 years, we've seen nothing but incessant creep of crude price. Ten years ago in December, it hit $8.50 a barrel, having dropped off from 20-some dollars. For decades, we had the impression that imports are cheap. Therefore, why go to the trouble of developing our own resources? Why take the risks of another Santa Barbara, which had a blowout in the late 60s? Why take the risk of developing our own resources with cheap foreign imports? Well, the world changed, and we didn't change with it. So now, instead of 30% dependency on foreign imports, we are 70% dependent. Instead of $8.50 a barrel 10 years ago, we hit $140-some dollars this past June. All because we have continued to demand more and more, and so has the rest of the world. And nobody really understood that the ability to get past some 85 million barrels a day of production held back mostly by geopolitical man-made reasons rather than the lack of oil, is now compromising our ability to get more oil into the system. But my talk, ladies and gentlemen, is not just about oil. It's about the inability of this nation to come to grips with what we should do, what we must do. And so what we have seen is government dysfunctionality, irreconcilable political differences, 
industry and environmental special interests, plaintiff attorney shenanigans, abusive behaviors by some companies, and special, and, 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 and special interests, and even government officials. So for too many decades, the system has not worked. And now I'm here to say that it can't work. It can't work the way it is currently set up. Here's part of the problem. You may not know this. Energy is the responsibility of six different executive branch cabinets. Each bureaucracy, Department of Defense, Homeland Security, Department of Energy, Department of Interior, Department of Transportation, Department of Commerce, each of those six departments has its own accountability over energy. And do they work together? Not necessarily. Do they work apart? Not necessarily. But what doesn't happen is a comprehensive plan coming from the executive branch because of different legal requirements by different cabinet agencies for what they regulate and what they manage and rule. In addition to that, there are dozens of committees and subcommittees in Congress that claim jurisdiction over one aspect or another of energy and the environmental impacts of energy. So dozens of committees and subcommittees approaching energy from their own committee perspective. And then we have the Republicans, and then we have the Democrats, and then we have the House, and then we have the Senate. We have their caucuses. We have the White House. And don't forget the courts. The courts jump into energy adjudication continuously because there is party and counterparty suits all over the nation. We also have 50 states which take jurisdiction over energy, and we have uncountable municipalities, which take jurisdiction over one form of energy or another. So we have a system that can't work because there is no way to bring it together. Let's take a look at the obvious. Industry decision-makers working in energy time, trying to meet the needs of the future, cannot work in harmony with political leaders operating in political time. The incompatibility has been proven year after year, decade after decade. We cannot take the energy decisions we need, whether it's for more supply, whether it's for new technology, whether it's for environmental protections, when we are up against the political time priorities of those policymakers who are seeking re-election, particularly in the course of the manner in which this country has fallen victim unto itself of partisan paralysis, where partisan positioning is more important than the good of the nation, where one party or another party goes out of its way to make sure that its party's agenda is what is priority of the day and is voted upon for the purpose of perpetuating that party's power position rather than for the purpose of, part, of positioning proper energy policy for the good of consumers and the good of the nation. That partisan paralysis is a disease that has grown mightily over the years, leading to the dysfunctionality, the paralysis, and I would suggest the unfixability of this without a major intervention. Let's take a few examples of what this really looks like in reality. We have, as a nation thus far, failed over decades to deal with the nuclear waste storage issue of the nuclear industry. And I've said many times, I'll say it again tonight, we should not build another nuclear plant in this country unless and until we can solve the nuclear waste issue. Today, we store nuclear waste on every site where we produce it. 
There will be an incident one day because that is not the ultimate policy of the nation in terms of storing energy. You may say, well, why haven't we solved this problem? I thought Yucca Mountain was the ultimate nuclear waste depository. Well, yes, it is, ladies and gentlemen, by law. The law is more than 20 years old. Well, why aren't we doing it? Well, in this tremendous democracy in which we live, Senate rules mean more than American democracy operating the way it was intended. Senate rules enable two senators from a state with less than 1% of the nation's population, Nevada, from the legislation actually taking hold. In other words, the senators have put a hold on funding this legislation for the last two decades. And not the existing incumbents alone, but their predecessors. So we haven't solved the nuclear waste issue because every six years, those senators run on the basis of stopping Yucca Mountain. And that's political time overcoming energy time. Another example, we've seen food prices skyrocket in recent months and year, in the last two years. Why? Because of a political time energy policy called corn ethanol, where for the purposes of satisfying the political needs of a few corn state senators and congressmen, we put in place a mandatory requirement to put corn ethanol into the fuel mix for the purposes of political re-election. Corn ethanol will go down in history as one of the poorest public policy decisions this country's ever made. Why? Not because it's a bad product. It's a fine product. But because it competes, it sets up a competition between food for ourselves and our, and our livestock and fuel in our tanks. There are other alternatives, such as cellulosic ethanol, but that's beyond energy time. I mean, that's beyond political time. That's energy time. Because cellulosic ethanol is still not ready for mass use across the nation because we're still working on how to produce it. And then we have to work on how to make it. So we have to do the science, and then we have to do the manufacturability before we can get it into the system. But corn ethanol, you can get it out there in a political time period, two years or four years. And that's exactly what's happened. But here's another consequence of a political time decision with respect to corn ethanol. And it's surprising that nobody talks about it, particularly with the environmental consciousness of the nation. But ladies and gentlemen, the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, which is a consequence of all the nitrogen-based runoff, which takes oxygen out of the water coming down the Ohio, Missouri, and Mississippi River system, is creating a dead zone that is growing by ever larger percentages per year. You talk about environmental devastation. People criticize the oil industry for environmental issues. Well, here is a public policy agenda put forward in political time with the unintended consequence of creating an ever larger dead zone where not even vegetation will live. And where are the environmentalists in talking about the growth of the dead zone? They're too busy talking about the goodness of the green fuel that's being produced in the corn states. I find that hypocritical, and we have to deal with the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. There are better forms of ethanol which we need to work on in energy time. For 30 years, for political time reasons, we've had a moratorium on offshore drilling. I mentioned that earlier. Interesting that in calendar year 2008, 
The President of the United States, for the first time in 30 years, relieves presidential moratoria in the seven-and-a-half-year limit of his term. Interesting that the Congress allows the moratorium to lapse six weeks before, five weeks before an election to take the issue off the table. But if anybody thinks we've ever dealt with the issue of the moratorium of the Outer Continental Shelf, one party's gone to drill, baby, drill. The other party takes it off the table entirely by letting the 30-year-long moratorium lapse. But if anybody thinks that this Congress has solved the issue of do we or don't we drill in the Outer Continental Shelf, the answer is absolutely not. We are no further ahead on this discussion of drill, baby, drill, or, or keep it off limits than we were before the 30th of September when the law lapsed. That's political time getting in the way of energy time's ability to solve the nation's energy supply problems. So, what are we going to do about all this? This is a litany of woes. The litany of woes may be fun to listen to. It may shock you. It may offend you. But the litany of woes doesn't solve the problem. I founded Citizens for Affordable Energy for several basic and primary reasons. There is no scarcity of energy. This nation, this world has more energy than it will ever, ever consume. We will never run out of oil. There is more oil than we will ever need, including conventional and unconventional. And the reason we won't need it all is we will move on in technologies where we don't want to use it because we prefer other technologies. We pre and I'll come on to those in a moment. So there's no scarcity of energy. There is no lack of oil. Why do we have $140 a barrel? Why in the last four years did we not raise the alarm? Because, ladies and gentlemen, just in the United States of America, the increased price of oil has cost American consumers over $500 billion out of pocket. That's $500 billion that did not go to house payments, that did not go to health care payments, that did not go to food purchases. It went to mostly pay for imported oil. Because the infrastructure is what it is, we have no choice. The price of oil went up and up and up. And nobody's talking about the extent to which the energy costs have contributed to today's financial crisis because we're all focused on housing. How many houses were lost because people had to choose between filling up the gas tank to go to work and making the mortgage payment, and suddenly they got so far behind, but they still had to fill up the gas tank to go to work that they got into an, 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 a cycle they couldn't get out of. The purpose for forming Citizens for Affordable Energy is to raise American consciousness of the disinformation, the misinformation, and the lack of information that surrounds energy in our society. It's great fun for the Republicans and the Democrats to spar against each other on their interpretation of the future of energy. For example, when one candidate says, look, we only have 3% of the world's reserves, and we use 25% of the world's supply. That is disinformation. In the sense that, while technically correct, 3% of proven reserves are in the United States, there's a big difference between proven reserves and probable reserves. Probable reserves are those resources that are probably out there, probably producible, 
But because they are not booked yet under Securities and Exchange Commission rules, because there's no access allowed, we only have 3%. But if the 100 billion barrels of probable that we know is in the Outer Continental Shelf and whatever we don't know is out there, and if the trillion barrels of unconventional oil shale were counted as part of the nation's oil resources, we would have well beyond 3% of the world's reserves. We would have, between Canada and the United States, two-thirds of the world's reserves if you counted unconventional energy. So what is the real information that's out there? Not the political information, but the real information. So Citizens for, for Affordable Energy, regardless of party, regardless of electoral cycle, regardless of candidate, is determined to put real information into the American mix. On a nonpartisan basis, we want to talk about four mores. The real purpose in Citizens for Affordable Energy is to promote education and information on the four mores. The first more, this nation needs more energy supply from all sources. If we don't do something to get more oil into the system, we will create such social distancing between the haves and the have-nots that we will have repercussions in our society. Because there are 250 million cars out there, ladies and gentlemen, that can only use oil. We can build more in the future that use something else. But how long does a car last? 15 to 20 years on average. So for the next 15 to 20 years, because we're still building new cars that only use oil, we'd better have more oil and it better be affordable or our social cohesion falls apart. We also need more energy and biofuels. There are many forms of biofuel we can produce. We need more natural gas. We need more unconventional oil. We need more wind. We need more solar. We need more coal. We need more nuclear. But with respect to coal, we can use new clean coal technology. Yes, it's more expensive. But if we can reduce demand, it's not that much more expensive. We need hydrogen. We need hydropower. We need geothermal power. Ladies and gentlemen, there is so much energy out there that we can draw from. All we need is a policy to go get it. Whether the incentive needs to be there or whether there needs to be other initiatives that government can lead us down the path, we can have all the energy supply we need. At the same time, and because some of those energy forms are more expensive, the second of the four mores is we must address the efficient use of energy through technology and innovation. We can, as a matter of fact, use less energy. Incandescent light bulbs, 3% of the energy gives us light, 97% wasted as heat. The internal combustion engine, 20% efficient. You put $80 worth of gasoline in your car, $16 gives you mobility, $64 wasted as heat. That's the nature of the technology. There must be something better than that, but in the short term, there isn't, because we've committed ourselves to internal combustion engines, and we're still building them. Plug-in hybrids, we're experimenting. Hydrogen fuel cell, we're experimenting. These all will need a push. They will also need an infrastructure. So this is not a quick fix. But more technology to increase the efficient use of energy, even if it's more expensive on a per-unit basis, it is net cost zero if we reduce demand. Third of the four mores, we must do a much more rigorous, better, and more regulated job of environmental management. What do I mean by that? Over the years, ladies and gentlemen, we've done a pretty good job of managing physical waste. Our streets are not littered. Our physical waste management is scientific. It's engineered. Our water tables are better protected. 
We can swim in lakes. We can swim in rivers because we've stopped the emissions of industrial liquid waste or other kinds of liquid wastes into public water bodies. It's time to do the same for gaseous waste. It's time to put restrictions, to put caps on gaseous waste, which is pouring into the atmosphere unfettered. None of us want to put our head over a smokestack. None of us want to stand next to the exhaust pipe of a bus. But yet we allow as a society the unfettered release of those gaseous emissions, which includes the CO2, which includes many other gaseous emissions, unfettered. When we can apply technology, when we can apply regulation in the same manner that physical waste and liquid waste are managed in what seems to be a, a cost-neutral world. We don't complain about the garbage bill. We don't complain about what we pay in end-use products from managing liquid waste. It's my view that if we put the regulations in place to manage gaseous waste, that too, over time, becomes an invisible cost into, but an improvement in our way of life. The fourth more is we need more infrastructure. From where we produce energy to where we consume energy, it's imperative that we have infrastructure to carry it. The blackout in the northeast part of the country in 2003 was, in 2003 was life-threatening. People died because the infrastructure was old. It failed. It collapsed because a particular utility company in Ohio didn't put enough preventative maintenance in on a particular hot day in August, the whole Northeast went down. We see more brownouts and blackouts than we've seen in our history. The infrastructure is old, and it's limited in the supply that it can carry. I'm not just talking transmission lines. I'm also talking pipelines. We are a growing economy, not presently perhaps, but we have been a growing economy and will be. Without more energy, we don't grow. Without more energy, our lifestyle is threatened. But if we produce the four mores in good, sound public policy, we have more supplies, we have less demand, we have more infrastructure, and we guard our environment in ways we never have before. That's the four mores that Citizens for Affordable Energy is all about. Let me close on this note. How do we deal? How do we deal with the politics of partisan paralysis? in terms of energy strategy? How do we deal with the personal vendettas that we see play out in the halls of Congress leading to dysfunctional behaviors? How do we deal with the disconnects between the cabinet offices, the congressional committees, the White House, the court system? This so-called unfixable system that I described. Well, I'm announcing tonight for the first time what I believe is a Structural change in the manner in which the United States government governs energy. We have a precedent. For the last 95 years, our monetary system has been governed not by the White House, not by the Congress, but by a supranational agency called the Federal Reserve Bank. You can take issue with the way the Federal Reserve Bank may or may not have operated in the last two months. But for 95 years, this country has known financial stability with two exceptions, the late 20s, in which excess took over, and the current period in which excess took over, and the excess moved faster than the Fed in both cases. 
The excesses moved faster than the Fed to control the money supply, to set the interest rates, to deal with the window, the nightly window of exchange rate. In similar manner, it is time for this country and our citizens of this country to benefit by governmental leadership that moves past politics, that moves past political time, that moves past partisan paralysis. What I'm suggesting is the creation of a new national governmental entity called the Federal Energy Resources Board with a chairman appointed by the president and a board of directors appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate that will exist for the sole purpose of establishing for this nation a comprehensive, coherent, short, medium, and long-term plan for the nation's energy, managing at the commanding heights of the energy world that affects us all. It would include managing the supply-demand balance, which includes all the forms of energy, and the demand-side issues, which involves efficient use of energy. It would include the carbon footprint from energy, managing that at the commanding heights level. It would include managing the infrastructure and recommending, suggesting, authorizing the technology choices that we can make as a nation going forward. It would put in place the plan for the future that Congress and the White House would be responsible for implementing. It would create regional boards in the same manner as the Fed to manage the regional issues of energy, the West Coast, the Southeast, the Midwest, the Northeast, the Southwest. These regions are important, and they all have different energy issues. The point is, if we don't take energy out of politics and put in place a supranational structure that goes beyond election cycle, that goes beyond the term of a president, that goes beyond the term of the senators, that goes beyond the terms of the congressmen, beyond the terms of the governors of the states, we will not solve the problem. An act of Congress can make this happen. The president can sign such an act of Congress. This is new. This is different. There are many people out there who have suspicious, who suspect the Fed, who don't like the Fed, who believes it's opaque and transparent. We can learn from that. This can be the most transparent supranational agency we've ever imagined. It can communicate directly to the nation's citizens. It can lay out the plan on behalf of the country to the citizens of the nation, and the citizens of the nation can say, yes, that works. We have to remember who is the boss of the nation every once in a while. We tend to think we're managed by Congress. We tend to think we're led and managed by the president. Ladies and gentlemen, we choose that person. We choose that Congress. And if we are informed, and if we are advised by this apolitical, non-political agency of the government, which has been democratically selected by the president and approved by the Senate, so it is a democratic institution, and the American people believe what it has to say, what do you think that message will say to the Congress which is there to enable, to enact the recommended strategy of the nation. So I leave you with that thought. We can solve this problem, but we need structural change, structural reform for the problems to be solved. And again, there's no lack of energy. There is no lack of oil. There is only lack of a plan. 
and the will to create such a plan in bipartisan fashion to benefit not the Republican Party, not the Democratic Party, not the Democratic presidential nominee, not the Republican presidential nominee, but the American people who are who matters in this entire equation. Thank you very much. Our thanks to John Hoffmeister, founder of Citizens for Affordable Energy and former CEO of Shell Oil USA. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, and we have a number of questions, uh, including one here about your Energy Fed or Federal Energy Resources Board. Uh, would it have a budget? If so, wouldn't it still operate in the political process? Um, and how would it affect technological choices and other strategy choices? Of course, Congress would have to create this, and the president would have to endorse it. But the Fed budget is not approved by the House or the Senate. The Fed budget is set by the chairman of the Fed and the board of the Fed. And so you could set in motion the same process for the Federal Energy Resources Board. It sets its own budget. People don't know this, but the Fed has about 20,000 employees. That budget is not sanctioned by Congress. Have you uh, consulted either political party or either, either presidential candidate and to, uh, to test out this idea for how it might get some traction? And this idea is being announced here tonight for the first time. The reason for it is having spent more than 100 visits to Capitol Hill, having talked with top-level bureaucrats and appoint, politically appointed secretaries of the cabinets, this proposal takes away from the authority of the existing political system. But the existing political system has denied the American people sound energy policy. So I'm taking this proposal directly to the American people before taking it to elected officials because it will be killed off, in my opinion, if it is taken directly to Capitol Hill or to the White House because this is a change. This is a dramatic change from the way business is done today. It's time for that dramatic change. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I did a, held a conversation with, with Governor Schwarzenegger, uh, who announced a summit of governors from around the world that he's hosting in Los Angeles. And his premise is that states are where the action is because action is not happening at federal and state-to-state -state level. Would it be possible for your idea for an energy fed to be done at a state level, or does it have to be at a national level? I think no state stands alone when it comes to energy, including California. California imports much of its energy. And for California to try to tell other states the way energy is going to be managed in California when it's so dependent on other states, I don't think it would work. I think that the nation needs this, not just a single state. So if states selectively approach this, and right now one of the problems in America is that so many states are going in very many different directions mm -hmm. on energy, on renewables, on environmental protections, that we have a patchwork quilt now of laws, regulations, and strategies, many of which are incompatible from state to state. And, and there really is not the benefit of the economies of scale. Companies that need to support the activities are being heavily taxed in one jurisdiction, not so in another. The chance of job movement, the chance of lack of investment in heavily taxed regimes versus not lower tax regimes, it could create a, a, a huge worse chaos and worse fragmentation than what we have today. I think it has to be national. 
and other nations can watch what America is doing and learn from it. There's a question here whether there is a model country whose energy policy does work. No. So we're as messed up as everybody else. I think the European Union has done a better job regionally, but not a perfect job, in managing the supply-demand balance and the environmental issues and allowing, in fact, improving technology and innovation. But they have their own issues. They have their own problems. And, and as we see in the manner in which they're approaching the financial upheavals, they have to work very hard to get common consensus on anything. We actually, as a nation, can move much faster if we choose to. Number of questions here about, about climate change. What are your opinions on global warming and how carbon-based fuels contribute to this? Well, I, I have to confess that I'm not a climatologist, but I speak aggressively on the issue of gaseous emissions. I do that because around the country, every one of the 50 town halls that I attended, the discussion of global climate change and, cl and w global warming became an ideological, divisive conversation in the town hall, where those who said it was and those who said it wasn't a reality went at each other. I find that talking about the obnoxiousness of gaseous waste is a much more practical way of dealing with the issues that people who look at climate change as a major issue are concerned about. And so I approach it from the pragmatism of managing gaseous waste. I will leave to others the ideological debate of whether it is or isn't a reality. But meanwhile, let's get on with managing gaseous waste. So, so am I copying the question? No, I don't know enough to declare. But I would say I would not be promoting the gaseous waste reduction notion if I wasn't deeply concerned about the impact on the world's atmosphere. So when the International Group of Scientists, the IPCC, comes out and says they're 99% certain that it's happening and it's man-made, you're still not sure? I'm approaching their end game more aggressively than they are. I'm using different language because I found the language of climate change divisive. A couple of questions here about oil shale and its uh, uh, contribution to greenhouse gases. And uh, so could you comment, please? Like, apparently this is something that, that shale is, is quite active right. in, and, and it, it's dirty and it's cheap. And so let's talk about shale. Well, oil shale is solid, with, exists within solid rock. There are gas and oil molecules locked in solid rock. You can break those molecules out in two ways. You can mine it and heat it, or you can heat it in, in where it sits. There are different technologies for doing that. There are those who believe that it is terribly dirty either way. I would submit that the in situ method, if the heat source is clean energy, the outcome is semi-refined product and natural gas. It's simply more oil. But it takes a serious commitment to have a renewable or CO2-less energy source to go into heating the oil shale in order to take it out. What that means is you either need nuclear or wind or solar in massive quantities, but to just burn coal, pulverized coal, not even clean coal, to get oil shale out, I would never endorse that as an energy source. Do you think that coal can be cleaned? Will carbon capture and sequestration work? The technology works. There's no question the technology works. 
there are several barriers that we have to get through as a society for the technology to be applied, including we have to get past the mindset of public utility commissions who believe their role is to deliver the cheapest energy to consumers. That'll keep us in the pulverized coal game because the capital cost of putting in the coal gasification and the carbon capture and sequestration infrastructure will never get paid for if we only go for cheapest utility cost at the kilowatt hour rate. Secondly, we have to get past the shenanigans of plaintiff's attorneys use, who use every opportunity of capital investment to line their own pockets with, with revenue as plaintiff's attorneys trying to stop and block every action from taking place. So carbon sequestration will require massive infrastructure, pipelines hundreds or thousands of miles long to take the CO2 that has been cooled into a supercritical liquid to bury it in a geological formation where it will stay buried. And so the opportunity to, to, to do the mischief to get in the way of those infrastructures being built and all the not-in-my-backyard crowd saying, not here, no way, Charlie, no way, Jose, that will add to the cost, and therefore the practicality of carbon capture and sequestration is still a distant possibility. We have to, get over, we have to overcome some of our natural obstacles to change for clean coal to ever be a reality. So I understand that that's distribution and, and the infrastructure is an obstacle now. Uh, but just on the core technology working, I thought that the Bush administration canceled their big IGCC demonstration project uh, in part because right. there was troubles with it and they broke it apart. Yeah, I talked to Secretary Bodman about that personally. He said, why'd you cancel it? I thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. He said, well, in concept it is. But what was coming to him for budgetary approval is a, is a, is a, was, a, was a mammoth ivory tower in the middle of cornfields in Illinois. And he said the costs keep going up at such a fantastic rate that he was unwilling to commit the nation to an out-of-control project. Uh, and, and so he therefore took the position that we have to go back and rethink this and break it down into digestible chunks that the nation can pay for. That's why he didn't cancel it because of a bad idea. He canceled it because the costs were running out of control. You mentioned something really interesting about local PUCs, public utility commissions, taking their mission as delivering the cheapest possible energy electricity. Uh, years ago in California, the profits of utility companies were decoupled from the amount of electricity they sell. So they can make more by selling less, which has been a real path-breaking thing in California. Could it ever be the case that price and volume could be decoupled in oil? So companies could, in fact, profit by, by selling less of their product like electricity companies do? Well, I think the difference between electricity, which is all produced locally, and oil, which is traded globally, is a problem in that regard. Yeah. Okay. What oil companies do, whether it's Shell or Chevron or whoever, is they produce crude oil and put it into the global trading market, and then they lose control over where it goes or what happens to it. And so Shell or any other oil company's downstream business gets crude oil off the global trading market and then puts it through its refineries. There's very little of an oil company producing its own crude and putting it through its own refineries. There is some amount that happens that way, but, 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 but most of the world crude oil production goes into the global trading market. And with regard to that global trading market, there's a question here about drilling in Anwar. How long would it, the Alaskan National Wildlife Refuge, how long would it take before enough oil were produced to affect the price at the retail level? Well, I'm not a big fan of Anwar for the reason that the amount of oil there is not worth the political fight to get it out of the ground. Uh, 
There are far more robust reserves in the Outer Continental Shelf off the coast of Alaska in the Beaufort Sea, the Chukchi Sea. Uh, if we don't produce Anwar, it's always there. Some future generation may decide to produce it. But we have so scarred the political dialogue over the issue of Anwar as we're now getting into the issue of polar bears that it, it, it loses all rational logic. And rather than, than, than get, get into the, the food fight over the debate, let's go somewhere else for now and just save that for another generation. So the, the North Arctic Sea, for example, where there's not so many people living, do you think it can be done cleaning? How would you do it? How, would you, how and where would you go after that? Oil? Well, I think first you have to map where are the richest reserves. You need to build an infrastructure that is compatible with the environment. You have to build an infrastructure that moves the crude or the natural gas out of the outer continental shelf into markets where it can be productive. All of this has to be done with environmental sensitivity to the Arctic climate. I had a discussion with an environmental group who was opposed to any Arctic development. I had to remind the environmental group that, look, the Arctic reserves are going to be developed by countries such as Russia, China, and others. Would you rather have American companies lead the way who know how to safeguard the environment, who know how to protect nature going forward, who have sustainable development commitments, or would you rather leave it to national oil companies who do not have such requirements in the way in which they operate? And there are those who are fundamentally opposed to Arctic drilling. I understand that. But at what price does oil have to get before the social cohesion is so bad that we have riots in the streets of America over the price of oil when the social responsibility of that environmental group did not extend to the economic responsibility of social cohesion in the streets of America. So there comes a point where we have to give to get. I believe that you can put sufficient environmental safeguards in place, that the risks are not going to be significant, that the ice flows can be managed, that the uh, ability to transport that oil can be secure, and that we should proceed down that path. You mentioned the, the price of oil. Uh, of course, it's up quite a bit uh, from a few years ago, but still down 50% from its peak. Now it's in the mid-70s somewhere. How is that changing? Do you think it will stay there? I testified in Congress in May that I thought the price of oil should be $65, that I thought that was a fair price in the marketplace. The inflation we've seen over the last three years is unconscionable inflation. It does bad things to society. It does bad things to the industry. The industry hates high oil prices. That may come as a contradiction to many people in this room. But the oil companies hate high oil prices because they know from 100 years of experience what goes up will come down. What they need is a balanced portfolio of oil opportunities, oil and gas development opportunities, which can be productive and return to investors at prices that society can tolerate. A $65 price today equates to, uh, on an inflation-adjusted basis, an affordable crude oil price. But let's face it, there's no free market. There's an international cartel that sets the level of production for OPEC countries. And that cartel is designed to keep the price up, not down. And, and it's designed to protect supplies for the future by keeping the price up. But that's not a free market. And so we've been the victim of not of a free market and of policies that we choose ourselves not to open up our own domestic resources. That is a serious issue. So the price has been too high. It was not an anomaly, though. This was not driven by speculators, in my judgment. This was driven by a sense of what the 
demand supply requirements were of a growing China, a growing India, uh, an expanding aviation industry, an expanding trucking industry around the world. It was particularly driven by diesel prices and aviation prices. Within a barrel of oil, there's only so much diesel and so much aviation. We needed more barrels. We couldn't get more barrels because of geopolitical issues, which prevented getting more barrels. You mentioned a balanced portfolio. A couple of questions here on uh, why are energy companies so narrowly focused on petroleum production? Why don't they play an active role in R&D and production of non-petroleum sources? And uh, yeah, another question about why aren't you doing more on renewables? That's a, good, that's a fair question. There are, every company is different. If anybody thinks that the oil industry is homogeneous, think again. It's not. It is very different. There are companies that have a particular philosophy that we stick to our knitting, it's oil and gas. There are other companies like Shell, when I was there, which said over the last 10 years, the world will not ever run out of oil. The oil age will not end for the lack of oil any more than the Stone Age ended for the lack of rocks. Instead, technology will move on. And as a consequence, let's, let's be first movers. Let's experiment. Let's spend billions of dollars, which the company did, to test wind, to test solar, to test, test biomass, biofuels. And that's still ongoing. So there are some companies that choose to see themselves more broadly. Some companies choose to see themselves more narrowly. But in the absence of a national energy policy, anything is fair game. In 10 years, do you think that some of the majors will have significant revenues from renewables? I do. I think if they stay with it. Because it's inevitable that various and different forms of technology will mature and will be commercial. And people will make a lot of money for it. I I have no hesitation about the future of alternative energy because it's job-creating, it's value-creating, and it's energy-creating. And isn't that what we want? My point is, shouldn't we be doing this as part of a coherent, cohesive national plan rather than willy-nilly letting venture capitalists, as they did in the case of corn ethanol, jump into corn ethanol development and jump out and flip the property before uh, it was actually in production if you now go to the, if you look at the financial statements of current corn ethanol companies, the balance sheets are in terrible shape. The price of ethanol has dropped precipitously, but the venture capitalists are long gone. They made their money. And now the local farmers are holding the bag or other investors. And I'm not saying it's wrong what the venture capitalists do. That's what they do. They get things started. Then they move on to something else. But because the corn policy is so bad, we have too much ethanol. The price has dropped. They can't even make money with the 51 cent a gallon subsidy. And the companies are likely going under because we're producing too much ethanol than, the mar- than what the market wants. There's also an import tariff on, on, corn, on ethanol. There is not on oil. Would you be in favor of eliminating the import tariff on ethanol? I would, but not yet. Because these, this is a new... Well, first of all, I would be supportive of incentives for cellulosic ethanol to move us away from corn ethanol. Not that we can't continue to produce some corn ethanol. That's fine. But let's not over-pollute the Gulf of Mexico. Let's save the Gulf of Mexico for the future as well. Um, But cellulosic ethanol has far more promise, far more BTUs per gallon. That's what we should be pursuing. And the incentive will be necessary if we need to guard the American industry for a while. There are uh, not that great a supply of imports for ethanol, that we could really change the mix in America. It's, it's really just not that big of an issue at the, per, at the current time. Question in, here. In later years, I would re- eliminate the tariff. 
Our guest at the Commonwealth Club is John Hoffmeister, founder of Citizens for Affordable Energy and former CEO of Shell Oil USA. I'm Greg Dalton. Question here from the audience about Brazil saying that they no longer import oil due to sugarcane that they produce domestically. And the question here is about whether the oil companies will actually get involved in in planting uh, rather than just extracting. I think it's possible for some. I don't know who, but it's possible. Uh, My former company has been part of the whole Brazil transformation, has been at it for 30-some years. But one thing to keep in mind when we hold up Brazil as the example to the world and there's nothing wrong with holding it up as an example. The Brazilian liquid fuels market equals 6% of the U.S. market. 6%. So the volumes that we're talking about are a fraction of the kind of volumes that we use every day in this country. It's like the nation would take care of the fuel, liquid fuel needs of the state of New Jersey. That's the comparison in terms of volumes Uh, for the comparison in the U.S. Now, having said that, Brazil's done a good job. And they have not for a moment slighted oil exploration and and development of new production opportunities for oil because you can't use sugarcane biofuel for jet aircraft. You can't use sugarcane ethanol for diesel trucks. You can't use uh, bioethanol for petrochemical production. You still need petroleum. Did Richard Branson fly a plane, uh, 747 in Europe, fueled by something other than petroleum? I seem to recall. He had a blended biofuel, okay, which was used in one engine. <laughs> and probably nobody on board. I bet he wasn't on board. <laughs> but let, and, and, and so is Qantas Airlines, so it's not just Virgin Airlines. No, there, and the Department of Defense has experimented with a variety, a range of different kinds of aviation fuels, testing, for example, uh, gas-to-liquids and using gas-to-liquids fuel in military aircraft. And, and so I think these experiments, these tests will go on, but for the foreseeable future, in energy time speak, we're talking decades before there is a substitute for petroleum-based aviation fuel, Jet A, as it's known, kerosene, as it's known in some countries, in the use of jet aircraft. Question here that says, how can you say that oil companies are wrongly vilified when they work hand-in-hand with oppressive governments such as those in, in Nigeria? That's a fair question. And Shell is one company, and there are others, have really debated at board level the, the viability of that. And there's two ways to approach it. One is stay out, do nothing, stay as far away as you can, or take the approach of working with following rule of law, following standards, following ethical behavior, and try to present oneself as a so-called force for good. I don't like that term because it implies colonialism is a better, is a better solution. But yes, there are corrupt regimes around the world, but within those corrupt regimes there are also real people trying to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, trying to develop the economic resources of their nation in fair, legal ways. And so there are companies that choose to try to work in that direction. Uh, I believe strongly in the transparency of bonus payments, as does my former company. If countries are unwilling to announce publicly, transparently, where bonus payments go, then I think companies have a right to withdraw and not be a part of the process, which is what my former company did. So there are ways to deal with it. There, there are 
also just some com- countries you'll just stay out of for, for, very, for reasons of human rights or reasons of environmental degradation. degradation. For example? Myanmar is, is an example. Of course, the U.S. has certain laws in this regard where certain nations, such as Iran, Syria, you're not allowed to do business. American company is not allowed to do business there. We haven't talked a whole lot about cars. There's a lot of people here in Silicon Valley who are betting on electric cars, or recently we've had people here from GM talking about the electrification of the vehicle. There's different sources of electricity. Do you see that as as changing the auto industry and thereby the the oil industry in in a significant way? Absolutely, but in energy time, not political time. I notice in today's paper, Telsa is cutting back because of the economics of what they're facing, which is a local Silicon Valley company. Energy time takes a while. And what we have to deal with, ladies and gentlemen, in terms of alternative vehicles, alternative technologies, is first of all, recognize the reality we live in today. 250 million vehicles on the road today. They'll be there for 5, 10, 15, 20 more years. Millions of more cars, something like 10 or 12 million cars will be produced this year, next year, the following year, most of which will be produced on today's technology some with flex fuel engines. The beginnings of the Volt or the beginnings of plug-in hybrids are going to start happening in the model year, what, 2010, 11, 12, and beyond. But in the thousands of units, not the tens of thousands, not in the millions of units, so the penetration of those vehicles into the automotive marketplace is going to take a considerable period of time. We don't yet know what they will cost. There may be those who buy trophy cars who are very proud of them, who drive around, particularly well-to-do people, who show the example of what's to come. But for many consumers who will buy cars in the future, they will want to know how far will it go on a tank. And whether that's a tank of biofuel, whether that's a tank of battery, called a battery a tank, how far will it go? Can I take my son or daughter to college and get back on a car that's with a different technology? We're used to the ubiquity of fuel availability. Well, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, I'm, partially, I'm partial to those. I'm on the mm-hmm. Department of Energy's task force, after all. So I'm partial to hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. But it may be 30, 40 years or longer before you can buy hydrogen ubiquitously across the nation. So why would I buy a car if I can't take my son or daughter to college, which is in another state, because there aren't hydrogen stations along the way? And if people are partial to hybrid plug-in hybrids, and you're traveling long distance, the first 40 miles are pretty good miles per gallon. But then when you've run out of battery and you've still got 500 miles to go before you've gotten to your destination, you're going to be using what is an inefficient, by definition, internal combustion engine that's designed to produce electricity in the battery, for the battery, but it's still not going to get you very good miles per gallon once you've used up the first 40. So while these are products that we should pursue, let's not build such expectations that this is revolution overnight. It's not. Scientists are saying that we need to change faster. Do you think that this change will happen fast enough to get to the carbon reductions that, whether you agree with them or not, scientists are saying, and the state of California has a law saying we need to get to certain reductions, and what you're saying is change isn't going to happen fast enough. Well, I think with respect to carbon reduction, we must move forward. I'm a big fan. I was part of the United States cap-and-trade, which is a system of cap-and-trade that companies were putting together to tell Congress, please pass this bill called cap-and-trade. And And Congress looked at the subject in June and walked away from it. 
They couldn't get it, they couldn't get off the dime because of the politics of political, because of political time, not energy time. I think we must move forward fast as, as fast as we reasonably can on cap and trade. If you've been to certain countries around the world, you can hardly breathe. If you think what it takes to pull off this year's Olympics, shutting down a vast amount of the industrial base of a particular part of a particular country in order to have the Olympics take place, imagine living there every day. This is a serious problem because guess what air Californians breathe? Does the air of the atmosphere move east to west or west to east? Guess what? It moves from Asia to California. So you're breathing what comes out of China. People on the East Coast are breathing what comes from the rest of the U.S. plus from China. The atmosphere knows no national boundary. I think we have to move forward as fast as we reasonably can. We have to manage the affordability. We have to manage the doability. We have to manage the acceptability of what this implies. The fastest way to reduce CO2 is to stop using so many hydrocarbons. To stop using so many hydrocarbons, in my opinion, will not come from changes in human behavior. I don't think we will stop driving. I don't think we will stop air conditioning and heating our homes and using lights at night and using ever more electronics as we run post-industrial enterprises. The biggest issue that Microsoft and Yahoo and Google face, ladies and gentlemen, is where do they get the energy to power up their information centers to manage the information age data that is so much a part of the future of our world? Energy is a big cost to these companies, even though they are software companies. But they can't do what they do without energy. That's electricity. Electricity is mainly coming today from carbon-based fuels. Renewable fuels are viable. They will happen. We can go faster. We should go faster. But make no mistake about it. The hundreds of thousands of wind turbines needed, not thousands, hundreds of thousands of wind turbines needed, the vast acreage of solar collection, the need for nuclear plants to replace coal plants, all of that has to be part of a comprehensive plan. And the evidence of the last 40 to 50 years of this country is we'd better change the game if we're going to get there because we can't get there from here. California may have a law that you must meet by 2020. I was a big supporter of AB 32. I instructed people in Shell to help make it happen. Because if we're helping to make the law happen and helping to make the regulations happen in a way that business can operate, everybody wins. So we didn't take a contrarian position. We took a cooperative position on AB 32 as a company. But here's a reality. AB 32 is a law. It hasn't yet been made practical. Low-carbon fuel standards are law. We don't know how to do it yet. So what if we can't, make, can't get there from here? Suppose, for example, many of the old refineries in this state find that the cost of complying with AB 32 becomes unacceptable from a return on investment standpoint, and rather than invest in the necessary technology to make AB 32 a reality, they say, we're not going to operate here. They close the plant. California can't stand for too many refineries to be closed if you're going to meet the fuel needs of the citizens of California. There are, I'm not threatening closure. I'm just saying there are people who will look at the possibilities rather than comply, just get out of the way. You buy a lot of your electricity from other states. I don't know what the percentage is, 
But suppose because you are so dependent as a state and because you set certain standards on the CO2 uh, effect of the energy you import, other states see the opportunity to raise your rates. At what point do your rates go so high that it becomes a burden on society for the purposes of AB 32 in which some future administration says, we can't afford this? The point is, making a law doesn't necessarily make it a reality. The reality has to be made in practice. The reality is it has to have commercial viability if it's going to actually have impact. And these are yet unknowns. I think we have to explore all those unknowns and find solutions. And California could be a great leader to the nation. And I hope that's what, hap that's what happens. But we're not there yet. We have a long way to go. And unfortunately, we're out of time, and we have to leave it there. Our thanks to John Hoffmeister, founder of Citizens for Affordable Energy, former CEO of Shell Oil. I'm Greg Dalton, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. <laughs>